we say things like, maybe later, perhaps another time, or I'll see you tomorrow. But for some of us, there won't be a tomorrow. Listen as your worst nightmares come to life. These nightmares have become someone's reality. My name is Justin Crowley, and this is The Murder Project. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of The Murder Project. In this episode, we're going to be discussing a murder that took me through several different emotions. I was sad, of course. I was confused. And by the end, I was more angry than anything else. This is an episode that will remind us to act on our gut instincts. But more importantly, when we see signs of escalating abusive behavior, we need to take action. Don't be afraid to speak out or speak up. You might be saving someone's life. In this episode, we're going to be covering a story about a mother-to-be until Brian intervened. On August 19, 2012, a 911 call came into the Door County, Wisconsin dispatch. On the other line was a woman working inside a convenience store. When the dispatcher asked what the emergency was, the woman said that she had called 911 on behalf of another person, and she was going to put that other person on the phone. On the other side of the counter, standing in soaking wet clothes, was 36-year-old Brian Cooper. He would tell the dispatcher that he needed to report a murder. The dispatcher, sounding confused, said, you know a murder occurred? And he replied, yes. He then told the dispatcher that he was the one responsible for the murder. And when the dispatcher asked him if it was an accident or if he was angry or before she could even finish her sentence, he replied that it was intentional. Later, police would enter a hotel room at the Sandy Bay Beach Resort and find the body of 21-year-old Alicia Bromfield. She was lying on the floor of the hotel room where she had been since the night before. She had been strangled to death. Alicia Bromfield was a young and ambitious 21-year-old. She had a job, and she was in school. She had been employed with Home Depot for the last five years of her life since she was 16 years old. I think that says a lot about someone to be able to hold down a position like that from such a young age. She was also a student at Western Illinois University. She was in her last semester of school, just a few months away from graduating, with a degree in forensic psychology and also criminal justice. Alicia was also six months pregnant with the baby girl. She had already decided that she wanted to name the baby Ava Lucille. Now, the father of the child wasn't in Alicia's life anymore and didn't plan on being there for Ava, but she was still incredibly excited to be a mother. Alicia's mother, Sherry, said she recalls the day that she found out Alicia was pregnant. She said she came home 
and Alyssa was sitting on the floor with a worried look on her face. Sherry asked her daughter what was wrong, and Alicia said she had something to tell her. But before she could even say it, Alicia's mom said, You're pregnant. Alicia immediately broke down crying. Sherry told Alicia that it was okay, and that no matter what, her and her husband would always be there to support her. She told her mom that she was going to name the baby Ava, and her mom made it very clear that no matter what happened, Alicia and Ava would be loved. Brian, the man I mentioned from the 911 call a few moments ago, well, he was Alicia's boss at Home Depot. He had been her supervisor for a long time out in the garden department. Alicia loved to work out there, and she was very proud of her work. And if I needed to make this point clear, Brian wasn't exactly a good supervisor. He was more of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type person. He would treat Alicia kind, give her extra days off if she needed it, but he would also constantly torment her. He would yell at her on the job, and it was even reported that he would throw things at her from time to time. He would call her a whore and a slut, but then turn around and make things nice with her again. It's no doubt that Brian used his position at the Home Depot to hold power and intimidate Alicia. Also, it became clear to everyone working there and also Alicia's family that Brian had a big crush on her. He would do anything and everything to spend as much time with Alicia as he could. He would also have Alicia do personal favors for him, like watch his dog whenever he was away. This is something that Alicia didn't really care to do, but thought that if she didn't do it, Brian would fire her. Brian had already told her several times whenever she pushed back against his request that if she didn't do what he said, he'd let her go. So reluctantly, Alicia had to do a lot of things for Brian that she didn't want to do. Brian would go around the workplace and tell people that Alicia was his girlfriend, but she wasn't. And from what everybody says, she rejected all of Brian's advances, and there were many. This is the kind of thing that, if it were me and I worked there, would give me a real creepy feeling about Brian. Alicia had even gone to some of her supervisors over Brian and reported some of the things that he was doing to her. But as far as I can tell, they didn't do anything about it. In some of my research, I read that one of Brian's supervisors told him that he needed to take an anger management class. He said that he would, but there was no follow-up. Big shock. Brian would continue to harass Alicia and ask him to go on dates with him, but she would decline. When she declined, Brian again would come back and threaten to fire her. So she would do it in order to keep her job. Now one of the big things that Brian asked her to do is accompany him six hours to Door County, Wisconsin to go to his sister's wedding. He told her that he needed a date and that he was walking his sister down the aisle. He didn't want to be there alone. Alicia told him that she couldn't make it, but Brian once again said if she didn't go, he'd fire her. So she went. This is something that made Alicia's mom, Sherry, very uncomfortable. 
She did not want Alicia to go with him to the wedding because she knew about all the things that Brian would do to her. Alicia told her mom that she had already told Brian that they were going just as friends and that there would be nothing more. She said that she would go with him to the wedding, but first thing the next morning, because of the six-hour drive, she wanted to come right back. Brian agreed and said that after the wedding was over, they'd go back to the hotel, get a good night's rest, and head out first thing in the morning. That was another thing that made Alicia's mom, Sherry, uncomfortable. The hotel. But Alicia assured her mom that everything would be okay because they were staying at the same hotel as the rest of the wedding party. That was the same hotel I mentioned earlier. The Sand Bay Beach Resort. That made Alicia's mom, Sherry, a little more comfortable, but she was still reluctant. I guess we can understand. Now the day before Alicia was killed, August 18th, her and Brian set out for the resort. After the six-hour drive, they ended up in Door County, Wisconsin. After they arrived and checked into the hotel, Alicia and Brian got into a big argument, or a big fight, as some people said. It turns out that the rest of the wedding party was not staying at the same hotel as Alicia and Brian. This is one of those things that I think he set up on purpose, that he told Alicia that they would be staying in the same hotel as the rest of the wedding party to give her some sort of false security. I think Brian was planning on this being the weekend for him to make his move. Because he had already talked about how Alicia was his girlfriend, he had already told people that they were sort of dating, things like that. This was his chance to take Alicia out of town to a wedding and make his move. Except for him, things didn't start out so well. When Alicia found out that they weren't staying at the same hotel, she was angry. She called her mom shortly after they arrived and said that she would be returning home. When her mom asked why, she told her about the situation with the hotel. Sherry told Alicia that she should at least contact the wedding party and let him know that Brian wasn't going to be there since he was supposed to walk his sister down the aisle. After a few hours, Alicia called her mom and let her know that they had worked things out and she was going to stay. She told her mom that they were going to stick to the plan, go to the wedding, go to bed, and get home. Now, as you can imagine, while they were at the wedding and the drinks were flowing, Brian continued with his unwanted sexual advances. After putting up with as much as she could at the wedding, she finally told Brian that when they got back, their friendship was over. She had finally had enough of Brian and his unwanted advances. And I could say, who can blame her? And also, what took so long? As the night went on, Brian continued with his friendly back and forth with her, trying to convince her that they should be a couple, but Alicia wasn't having it. This made Brian angry, and the more he sat there, the more he realized that he couldn't handle it. He couldn't accept the fact that Alicia would be out of his life. It was probably at this time he started cooking up a plan, a plan in case his weekend getaway with the woman of his dreams backfired. Brian and Alicia stayed at the reception until well after midnight, and for that, Brian should have been thankful because remember, Alicia was six months pregnant. When they got back to the hotel, all Alicia wanted to do was get some sleep 
before they had to start their six-hour drive back home. I would even venture to say that she was probably thinking that she would be doing the driving as Brian consumed heavy amounts of alcohol while he was at the wedding reception. When she got into bed and tried to go to sleep, Brian brought up something about watching a movie with him the following weekend after they got back. Alicia said no, and she reminded Brian that when they got home, their relationship as friends was over. There would be no more movie nights or dog sitting, errand running, whatever it was that Brian would have her do to try to hold some position of power or authority over her. She was done. Alicia went to sleep, and when she was asleep, Brian continued to drink. He would leave the room and go outside and smoke and come back in and pace. The thought of him not having Alicia in his life was starting to get to him. He didn't want their relationship to be over. What were people going to say when he got back? He had already told everybody that they were dating. He already had this idea in his head that they were going to be a couple. Alicia took that idea he had and crushed it. Brian said at one point in the night, Alicia woke up while he was still awake, thinking about everything that had happened. He said that he snapped, that he couldn't take it anymore. So he jumped on the bed where Alicia was laying and started to strangle her. She was fighting back and trying to get him off of her. He straddled her and continued to choke her. They wrestled back and forth and eventually fell off the bed onto the floor. Brian regained his position back on top of her and continued to strangle her. Alicia was pleading, but she wasn't pleading for her life. She was pleading for her baby's life. She was telling Brian, don't do this. Think of the baby. Think of the baby. But Brian was not thinking about any of that. Brian was only thinking about himself and his shattered ego. After a few minutes, Alicia quit moving and Brian realized she was dead. But he didn't get up and call 911. He didn't try to save the baby that was slowly dying inside of Alicia's body. All he could think about was checking one more box. When you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. Brian had one more fantasy that he wanted to complete. He took off Alicia's clothes while she was dead on the floor, and he sexually assaulted her. This is the part of the story where, for me, I got pretty angry. Because after all the things that had happened, he did that. He raped her post-mortem. After the sexual assault was over, Brian got a pillow off one of the beds and a blanket and made her a pallet on the floor like she was sleeping. After that, Brian went into the bathroom and went to sleep in the tub. The next day, Brian would wake up in that tub and the reality of what he did through a hangover would come back and hit him. After Brian got up, he contemplated on what to do, but ultimately he decided that he was going to commit suicide. In Brian's interview, he said he tried to use a butter knife and a corkscrew to kill himself, but it didn't work. And when I was listening to the interview, I thought to myself, this was just a desperate cry of attention. I don't believe anybody was going to try to use a butter knife or a corkscrew to try to kill themselves. After that didn't work, 
Brian said that he drove to a bay and he was going to drown himself. He swam out into the bay but said he couldn't do it, said he couldn't drown himself. So he got back into his car. This is another thing that I honestly just don't believe. I mean, drowning yourself is one of those things that could be potentially easy. All you'd have to do is swim until you get exhausted and then let gravity take effect. After Brian got in his car, he drove to that convenience store and told the clerk to call 911. After the 911 call was made, the police showed up and took Brian into custody. When they got back to the police station, Brian told the police everything that happened the night before. He detailed the account in a way that made me nauseous. There was some crying, but the thing I noticed the most about it was it was so matter-of-fact. And another thing that bugged me about the interview was he was wearing sunglasses the whole time. Now that's just a personal thing for me, because it bothers me when people wear sunglasses inside. Now while this was going on, while the interview was taking place, the police were typing up a search warrant for Brian's apartment. What they found in the apartment was also disturbing. Located inside of Brian's apartment was video footage from inside his bathroom. He had set up a hidden camera in his bathroom to catch Alicia when she was helping dog sit for him. He would leave the camera in the bathroom, and when Alicia went to use the restroom, he recorded the whole thing. That is also something that I would never understand. In what perverted way would you want to watch someone use the restroom? I don't understand it. Later they would also find that Brian had a hidden camera inside the trash can of the hotel room. The night of the wedding, Alicia had taken a shower. Brian was able to capture her getting in and out of the shower naked. This was a detail that up until the trial, no one knew about. And that's another thing that threw me off guard. When I read that this information came out in the trial, I couldn't actually understand why there would be a trial. The details of the night that Alicia died were laid out in a full confession by Brian himself. He recounted the events of that night multiple times in taped interviews. Brian said that his acts were intentional. Brian admitted to killing Alicia and her baby. What possible reason would there be for a trial? Well, that reason is because Brian pled not guilty to two counts of murder, one for Alicia and one for her unborn baby, Ava. And what was Brian's supposed defense? Well, at this time in Wisconsin, you could still claim voluntary intoxication as a defense in a criminal trial. Voluntary intoxication would mean that Brian could admit to the murder but not admit to any accountability for the murder because he was so drunk he didn't know what he was doing. Most of us see this as insane because as I just mentioned, Brian made a confession. Brian spilled the beans. He told them everything. In Wisconsin, voluntary intoxication was still a defense. This was a situation that was terrible for Alicia's family. Because if Brian had just pled guilty to the two counts of murder, they wouldn't have to sit through the trial and relive Alicia's murder every day. 
but they had to sit through the trial. And when they sat through that trial, all the information came out. The information about the murder, the confession, and they also learned about Brian secretly videotaping Alicia in the restroom. Now, if you remember from the last case that we did on episode one and two, the jury can be a really tricky thing because even though you have the voluntary intoxication, this also seems like it's pretty cut and dry. Well, as we'll learn, nothing is ever cut and dry because a jury is made up of everyday people with their own opinions and their own biases. This jury was made up of 12 women. It seemed like in a situation like this, there would be no other verdict than guilty. But out of the 12 women, two of them decided that the involuntary intoxication defense was plausible. That maybe there was a chance Brian didn't know what he was doing when he killed Alicia. So when the verdict came in, it was a hung jury. And just like in episode one, Brian would have to be tried again. Going back and thinking over all the information, it's hard to see how that could be plausible. I don't understand how two people can decide that the voluntary intoxication would actually be a defense. I can see if Brian would have said, we came back from the wedding at midnight, I continued to drink, and I don't remember much after that. When I woke up in the morning, I saw Alicia dead on the floor, and I didn't know what happened, but there was no one else in the room, so I guess it was me. But that's not how it went down. Brian gave a detailed account of what happened. I know I've said this many times over, but I just can't understand it, and perhaps I won't ever understand it. The difference between being blackout drunk and not remembering what you're doing and giving a detailed account of what happened cannot be the same thing. When you're blackout drunk, that's exactly what it sounds like. Blackout. The lights turn off. The body is moving, but the brain has gone to sleep. This was obviously not the state that Brian was in. He knew everything. He remembered everything. He was fully and solely responsible for Alicia's death. After the trial ended the way it did, Alicia's family prepared for the next trial. But while they were waiting, they wanted to make sure that this would never happen again to anybody else. They began lobbying their state's government to make sure that voluntary intoxication could not be used as a defense anymore. Well, they actually got that accomplished, but it wasn't just done in one state. It was done in over 30 I remember thinking to myself at the time that if this would have been Texas, Brian would have never been able to use that defense. And the only reason I bring this up is because when I was going through the academy in 2009, I distinctly remember two things from one of my classes. Voluntary intoxication and ignorance of the law could never be used as a defense. But kudos to them for lobbying their local government and getting the law changed in so many states. Now on the second trial, this law would actually not come into play for Brian, because under the law, he was grandfathered in, and was able to use voluntary intoxication again. During the second trial, the jury didn't see it the same way. After only an hour of deliberation, the jury came back and found him guilty on two counts of first-degree intentional homicide, 
for the murder of Alicia and Ava. On July 24, 2014, Brian was handed down two consecutive life sentences. This would mean that Brian would spend the rest of his natural life in prison, and that's where he should be for the rest of his days, rotting in a cell without the opportunity to victimize another woman again. After the trial was over, Alicia's family decided that they were going to keep Alicia and Ava's memory alive by setting up a nonprofit organization to help out single moms. At this nonprofit organization, they do fundraisers and take donations for grief support for families and also baby sponsorship. The baby sponsorship is set up for single mothers to get the help that they need through the first year of the baby's life. I think that's pretty cool and a noble cause. If you want to make a donation or volunteer or support, it's called The Purple Project. And you can find them at www.purpleproject.org. In closing out this podcast, I want to leave you with a quote from Sherry, Alicia's mom. She says, As time moves on, our love for Alicia and Ava continues to grow and give back in ways that we never could have imagined. And that's going to do it for episode three of The Murder Project. Make sure and tune in next time because I'm sure Mike and I are going to have a pretty fire debrief. There's so many things I want to say about this case and also about Brian. So make sure and tune in to next episode. It's going to be a good one. Also, if you guys haven't already, hit us up on all the social media platforms. If you're on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash podcast tmp if you're on twitter you can find us at the murder pod and if you're on instagram you can find us at the murder project please go on there and like and subscribe to the pages because that's where we'll be giving our information before the podcast drops that's where we'll put the pictures and episodes before they come out So if you're on social media and you want to get the info before the episodes drop, make sure and go by and give those pages a like. If you like the podcast, consider going and giving us a review on whatever platform you listen. These reviews in the beginning are the best way to help us get our podcast out to more people, and we'd appreciate it a lot. That's all I have for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. It really means a lot to me. But before I go, remember, head up, eyes up, and stay alive.